This is Music Notes and More with your host, Jason Ginty. Imagine satisfaction with Keith Richards' iconic guitar riff replaced by a horn section. Robert Plant celebrated a birthday this week. Derek and the Dominoes work on a classic. Finn Lizzy gets bronzed. Keith Moon parks in a pool. And do you know the most played songs ever on a jukebox? We're going to find out that and much more as we take a look back at the week of August 19th in music and pop culture history. The great Robert Plant celebrated his 71st birthday this past week. Yeah, Robert Plant, 71 years of age. Now, I'm not going to go into a deep dive into the greatness of Robert Plant. I think we kind of all get that at this point. But I want you to keep in mind that he was just 20 years old when Led Zeppelin I was released. It was this week back in 1971 that actually Led Zeppelin kicked off a North American tour at the Pacific Coliseum in Vancouver. Now, the band played to a sold-out crowd of over 17,000 fans. Here's the problem, though. Another 3,000 fans had to sit outside and couldn't get in, and they didn't like that. They got pissed. They didn't have tickets, so they started to fight with the cops, which, by the way, not usually a good idea. You had to go back to 1964 this week when the Beatles kicked off a North American tour at the Cow Palace in San Francisco to a crowd of 17,000. They played just 12 songs, and you'll never guess who opened for them. That's right, the Righteous Brothers, who were pretty hot at the time, opened for the Beatles. This week back in 1975, a band called Queen started recording a song, you may have heard of it a few thousand times, called Bohemian Rhapsody. It was recorded at Rockfield Studios in Wales and took them about three weeks to do it. It appears on the album A Night at the Opera. This iconic song had been rolling around Freddie Mercury's head for quite a long time, for years beforehand. Freddie sat on the song for quite a while. Now, he knew he had something. He just didn't have all the parts put together just yet. And once he got into the studio in Wales, they put it together. I like to capture a song very quickly so that it's fresh. And then you can work on it afterwards. But, I mean, I hate sort of um, trying to write a song. And if it's not coming, no, come on, let's try this. It either comes quickly and then you have it. You know, like like the basic skeleton. And then I say, yes, we have a song. And now then we can start putting in all, all the clever bits. Well, for Bohemian Rhapsody, the clever bits took a lot of damn work. Uh, Brian May and the other guys in the band sang their vocal parts continually for 10 to 12 hours a day over the three weeks, resulting in 180 separate overdubs. Now, the single was accompanied by a promotional video which scholars considered groundbreaking. You remember it, right? The black background, the four members' heads singing uh, in some white light. Uh, Well, here's the thing about that video. That thing was about seven years before MTV went on the air, and in a way, they sort of launched MTV years later. Freddie Mercury said that it was basically three songs that I wanted to put out, and I just put all three of them together to create bohemian rhapsody now the piano that you hear that is beautiful on the song uh was the same one that paul mccartney used to record the song hey jude when the band wanted to release the single back in 1975 all the record executives suggested to them that at five minutes and 55 seconds the song was too long and would quote never be a hit just goes to show you what the suits know right the song was played to other musicians and they commented the same things. The band had no hope of it ever being played 
on the radio today. It's considered one of the best songs ever recorded and has been played millions of times on the radio. It was this week in 1965 that the Rolling Stones single, I Can't Get No Satisfaction, was released in the United States. Now, obviously, the song is one of the biggest classic rock songs of all time, but how it got written is kind of interesting. You see, Keith Richards wrote Satisfaction in his sleep. That's right. He recorded a rough version of that classic guitar riff on a cassette player. Now, he had no idea he had written it. He nodded off. He said when he listened back to the recording the next morning, there was about two minutes of acoustic guitar before you could hear him drop the pick and then snoring for the next 40 minutes. Well, Mick Jagger later heard the riff and went, wait a minute, we got something here. And he sat down and wrote the lyrics by the pool where he was hanging out in Clearwater, Florida, four days before they went into the studio and recorded a classic. Now, Keith Richards envisioned redoing the track later with a horn section. That's right, a horn section playing that iconic guitar riff. He says this was just a little sketch because to my mind, the fuzz tone guitar was really there to denote what the horns would be doing. It would be a completely different song today. Now, the lyrics were obviously fairly controversial at the time in 1965. You've got the reference in the verse to not getting any girl reaction, which, of course, was interpreted by many listeners and radio programmers as meaning the girl not willing to have sex. And Jagger commented at the time, he says, look, people don't understand. That's not the dirtiest line in the song. He says the next line or a a few lines later, the girl asks him to return the following week as she is, quote, on a losing streak. That losing streak line is in reference to her being on her period. In other words, I can't have sex with you now because I'm menstruating. So I'll be back in a week and we'll get it done. (laughs) That's so crazy. Uh, Jagger commented on the song's appeal. He says it was a song that really made the Rolling Stones. He says it changed it. Uh, It changed us from just another band into this huge monster band. Look, it's got a very catchy title. It had a very catchy guitar riff. It has a great guitar sound, which was original at that time in 1965. And it captures a spirit of the times, which is very important in those kinds of songs. That's right. Now you know. The next time you hear Satisfaction, think about the girl on her period. Grinding, twerking, all kinds of wildly sexual things happening on a dance floor today. Well, that's okay. But back in 1923, things were very, very different. You see, it was this week in 1923 that up in Michigan, an ordinance was passed forbidding dancers from gazing into the eyes of their partner. That's right. You couldn't look into your girl's eyes. You had to stare down at her boobs. Wait, that's not right. Either way, Imagine how far we've come from 1923. Like if you go to a Catholic school dance and you get a little too close to a girl, one of the chaperones comes up and will be like, hey, leave room for Jesus. Leave room for Jesus. (laughs) 
You've probably heard at least one version of the song Dancing in the Streets. Uh, Well, it was this week back in 1964 that the originators, Martha and the Vandellas, released the song. Now, great version. But later on, that song, Dancing in the Streets, was covered on the Diver Down album from Van Halen in 1982. And it's an incredible version, probably the best version out there. Uh, Eddie Van Halen said at the time, he says... It takes almost as much time to make a cover song sound original as it does to writing an original song. He said, I spent a lot of time arranging and playing synthesizer on Dancing in the Streets, and the critics just wrote it off as, oh, it's just like the original, which, by the way, if you listen to both, not even close. So Eddie Van Halen says, forget the critics. These are good songs. Why shouldn't we redo them for the new generation of people? And that's actually true. You hear a lot of cover songs over the years, other bands doing other bands' songs. And sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. But it is kind of cool to reintroduce great songs to a new generation of listeners. It was this week back in 1968 that Cynthia Powell Lennon sued John Lennon for divorce on the grounds of, wait for it, adultery. A couple of years later, John Lennon was married to Yoko Ono. It was this week back in 1970 that a classic was born. Well, it wasn't a classic at first. You see, it was the band Derek and the Dominoes. They started work on their first and only studio album called Layla and Other Assorted Love Songs. It was their only studio album. Now, when it first came out, it was considered a critical and commercial disappointment. It failed to even chart in Great Britain, and it peaked at number 16 here in the United States. Yeah, Derek and the Dominoes, that was the new band that contained Eric Clapton in it. Now, the album's eventual centerpiece called Layla, you've heard it, uh, was rooted in Clapton's infatuation with Patty Boyd, who, by the way, was the wife of his good friend and Beatle lead guitarist, George Harrison. That caused some trouble, by the way. Dwayne Allman of the Allman Brothers. He plays on 11 of the 14 songs on the album. Dwayne Allman did not know Eric Clapton up until this point. How they met is cool. You see, Dwayne Allman was a huge fan of Eric Clapton's. So Dwayne Allman happened to be in town performing with the Allman Allman Brothers uh, in Miami. And he asked Eric Clapton's people if if Dwayne could walk by the studio one day and just watch Clapton record, which would have been a huge thrill for Dwayne Allman. Well, here's what Dwayne didn't realize. Eric Clapton was a huge fan of his. And Eric Clapton showed up a couple nights prior to the gig where Dwayne Allman was performing. And Dwayne didn't have any idea that Clapton was there. Clapton is obviously sitting like in between the barricades from the front row and the stage, that little buffer area. And he's just sitting there watching the Allman Brothers play. Dwayne Allman is on stage, has no idea that one of his favorite guitar players in the world is sitting there watching him. He's in the middle of a ripping solo. He looks down. He sees Clapton. He stops playing and he freezes because he's blown away that Eric Clapton is sitting right in front of him watching him perform. He stopped. He's on stage. You don't do that. That's not good. Dickie Betts realizes what's going on, and he picks up the solo and continues the solo in the song. He actually had to turn away and not look at Clapton. Otherwise, he would have froze too. (laughs) Clapton's just sitting there watching, and that's how 
they get to know each other because a couple days later, Clapton invites Allman over to the studio to hang out and they begin to play guitars. They spend like two nights playing guitars, talking guitars and having a great time. Then, of course, Clapton's like, you know what? You got to play on this album. And there you go. Dwayne Allman is doing a lot of the cool guitar work on Derek and Adamino's album. It was this week in 1968 that the TV program called The Monkees ran its final episode. It only had 58 episodes, but chances are you've seen lots of them because after the original run, repeats and repeats were on numerous networks over the years, and you probably can still see them today. It was this week back in 1988 that we found out the most played songs on a jukebox in the first 100 years. And those two songs were actually Patsy Cline's song called Crazy and Hound Dog from Elvis Presley. That's right. The first 100 years of the jukebox, those are your two most played songs. It was this week back in 1970, the Credence Clearwater Revival started a nine-week run at number one on the U.S. album chart with their fifth studio album called Cosmos Factory. Now, the name of the album comes from the warehouse in Berkeley, California, where the band was rehearsing. Now, band leader John Fogarty was so insistent on practicing every single day that drummer Doug Cosmo Clifford began referring to the place as The Factory, hence the name of the album Cosmos Factory. And don't ever call one of John Fogarty's songs an oldie song or something that isn't still current and cool today, because they'll get mad. Let's say a song like Born on the Bayou. I, I mean, to me, that is a wonderful rockin' song. It's not like something from, let's say, that's stuck in a time like disco music. Most of the th- songs I wrote, I think, are not stuck in a, in a time because they're, they're rock and roll. The great Phil Lynott, singer, bass player of the band Thin Lizzy, was born this week back in 1949. If you're thinking Whiskey in the Jaro, the boys are back in town, well, you would be thinking correctly. Anyway, Lynott died uh, in January of 1986 of heart failure and pneumonia after being in a coma for eight days following a drug overdose. 2005, a life-size bronze statue of Phil Lynott was unveiled on Harry Street in Dublin. Yeah, if you go uh, to Harry Street in Dublin, there's this massive bronze statue of Phil Lynott on the street right outside of a pub. My suggestion to you is, next time you're in Dublin, cruise into the pub, get yourself a pint, maybe a shot of whiskey, come out on the street and drink that stuff in salute to Phil Lynott. Now, what's interesting, I was over in Ireland a few years ago, and if you go to the southern tip of Ireland in a little city called Cork, Ireland, County Cork, there is a bar called the Bodran. It's right on Oliver Plunkett Street, and it's dinky-ass little bar. The Guinness is cold, the whiskey is delicious, and many of the pictures on the wall and the music on the jukebox, all Thin Lizzy and Phil Lynott. Definitely check it out if you ever get yourself over in Ireland. Dude! 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 No way! This week back in 1968, the University of Tennessee's Audio Lab reported that a guinea pig subjected over a three-month period to 88 hours of rock music recorded at 120 decibels suffered acute damage to the inner ears. Now, the report 
went public saying that exposure to long periods of loud music is harmful to your ears. There was uh, an owner of a New York club who said, quote, should a major increase in guinea pig attendance occur at our club, we'll certainly bear their comfort in mind and turn the music down. In other words, you shouldn't listen to loud music, but that isn't stopping anybody, is it? This week back in 2004, there was a guy who wanted a divorce from his wife. And in the papers for divorce, he named Brian Adams. Yes, that Brian Adams as the other man in the divorce papers after years spent trying to cope with his wife's obsession with the singer. The guy's name is Rob Tinsley. He said that his wife had never met Brian Adams, but he had to live with a six-foot cutout of Brian Adams, which stood at the foot of their bed, and there were Brian Adams posters all over the bedroom walls. Safe to say she's a bit obsessed. Well, one of Brian Adams' biggest songs is called The Summer of 69, and this may be where the guy had some problems, because Brian Adams has said that the song is actually not about the year 1969, it's about sex and summertime, and is a reference to the 69 sexual position. Happy anniversary to Bono and his wife, Alison Stewart. They got married back in 1982. Now, they had been together from 1975. The bassist, Adam Clayton, from U2, was Bono's best man in the wedding. Elvis has left the building. You've probably heard that before. You've probably made the jokes saying that before when you've left the party. Well, it had to come from somewhere, right? Well, it did. It came from a guy named Al Devorin. You see, he was the announcer who popularized the phrase, Elvis has left the building. Well, it was back this week in 2004 that he died in a car crash on his way home from an Elvis Presley convention in California. Here's the problem. You see, the poor guy Devorin was never paid for the recordings of his words, which you might think, well, that's all you said, dude. But he did make it a catchphrase. He was real bitter towards the multi-million dollar Elvis Presley Enterprises. You see, in the early 1970s, Colonel Parker, who was in charge of Elvis, asked DeVoren to inform fans at a gig that Presley would not be appearing for an encore. So he took the stage and announced, ladies and gentlemen, Elvis has left the building. Thank you and good night. And that's where it became famous. And he did it numerous times afterwards. And he creates the catchphrase, Elvis has left the building. He never made a dime for it. So he had to go around and go to all these Elvis Presley conventions and sign autographs to make money. On the way home from a convention in 2004, at age 81, he was killed in a car crash. It was this week back in 1967 that Lane Staley, vocalist of Alice in Chains, was born. Of course, Alice in Chains, one of the leaders in the grunge movement in the early 1990s. He was also a member of the group Mad Season, which put out a couple of really, really great albums. He was found dead from a mixture of heroin and cocaine in his home on April 5th, back in 2002. Also this week in 67, Keith Moon was enjoying himself a wild-ass birthday party. And uh, here's the problem. When you're Keith Moon, the drummer with The Who, you tend to get a little bit, uh, how do I say this, out of control. He drove his Lincoln 
into the Holiday Inn swimming pool where he was partying. Now, as the party had become out of control, the police were called and they were supposed to put an end to the festivities. Now, Keith Moon, ever keen to avoid the cops, he snuck outside. I mean, what's the first thing you did back in the day when you were at a party and someone yelled, cops, you ran. Well, Keith Moon did the same damn thing and he got into a Lincoln Continental limousine and it attempted to make a getaway. Unfortunately, he was wasted and he released the handbrake and began rolling down a hill towards the pool. Keith Moon simply sat back and waited as the car crashed through the fence around the pool and then into the water. Now, Keith Moon wasn't the original drummer for The Who. Here's how he got himself into the band. We were all from roughly the same area in London. And uh, we all used to work under the same agency, and, uh, but in different groups. The best group was the Detours, which is what the, uh, the band was called, which consisted of uh, Roger, Pete, John, and a guy called Doug Sandon. Then they got rid of their drummer, and I got to hear about it through the agency. And so I decided to go down and listen to the band. And I went down to a very small pub, and uh, they were playing... The boys were out there doing a set. I'd had a few drinks, and I decided, well, I'll just steam up on stage and, and play. And uh, they've never thrown me out since. Keith Moon forcing himself into The Who. This week back in 1966, The Doors started recording their very first album at Sunset Sound Recording Studios at West Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles. Now, The Doors album has sold over 20 million copies. Robbie Krieger, the guitarist had only been playing the electric guitar for six months when he was invited to become a member of The Doors. Now, their hit, Light My Fire, was composed by Robbie Krieger. Now, although the album version was seven minutes long, it was widely requested for radio airplay. So a single version was edited to under three minutes with nearly all the instrumental break removed for airplay on AM radio. And finally, it was this week back in 1990, the Judas Priest successfully defended themselves against a lawsuit after two fans attempted suicide while listening to the Stained Class album. Both fans did eventually die, one immediately from a shotgun blast and the other on a second attempt three years later by a methadone overdose. Now, the prosecution claimed that there were subliminal messages in the group's music that caused the two 17-year-olds to carry out the suicide pact in 1985. But Judas Priest successfully defended themselves against the lawsuit. Music Notes and More is generally hacked together by me, Jason Ginty. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that good stuff. And if you enjoyed this episode, well, be sure to like, subscribe, and listen to other Music Notes and More episodes. 